everyone. Welcome to the Envara and Conversations with podcast. Today, we're going to talk about what I hope are some interesting topics, including AI and sort of data ethics and clinical research. I'm Luke Shalana, I'm IRB Chair and Senior Director at Envara. I'm joined by Reed Blackman. Reed, want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name is Reed Blackman. I'm the CEO and founder of Virtue, an AI ethical risk consultancy. I'm also the author of Ethical Machines, a book on AI ethical risk mitigation forthcoming from Harvard Business Review Press. I'm the chief ethics officer for the nonprofit Government Blockchain Association. I'm a senior advisor for Deloitte's AI Institute. I was on EY's AI advisory board and some other things as well. Great. So I'm excited to start our conversations. I guess we can just jump in, get moving. In the research community, we've been hearing sort of rumblings about AI and the ethics of AI for a long time now. This is something that's sort of squarely within your domain of expertise. I'm wondering if we could just start by having you give kind of a layperson explanation of AI, maybe tailored for someone who's never heard of it, tailored for someone like my grandma who's, you know, has no idea what very little idea about what computers do or how they work. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you know, let's start with electricity. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So here's a sort of crash course in what AI is for putting the ethics stuff to the side. Obviously we'll get to that. So when you hear artificial intelligence or AI, most people are talking about what's called machine learning or ML. They're basically used interchangeably by the vast majority of people, certainly in a, say a business context, they're using them interchangeably. It sounds really sort of complicated and scary, intellectually intimidating to a lot of people, machine learning. You you know, you have data scientists talking about these things or building models. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is that conceptually speaking, it's all relatively simple. All it is, is software that learns by example. It's software that learns by example. So everyone is more or less familiar with software. Even your grandmother has interacted with software, you know, at the ATM, anything you do on your computer, that's all software. Okay, so it learns by example. What's a, an example of that? Well, let's say you've got some software, some photo, photo recognition software that recognizes pictures of dogs. And so you wanna be able to upload a picture of your dog or take a picture of your dog, Pepe, and your software says, that's Pepe. And if it's not a picture of Pepe, it's Pepe's friend, then it says not Pepe or something like that. So how do you teach the software, so to speak, what Pepe looks like? You give it a bunch of examples. A fancy word for examples, data. You just give it a bunch of photos, digital photos of Pepe, and the software, quote unquote, learns what Pepe looks like so that when you do upload or take that new picture of Pepe, it says, yeah, that's Pepe. And that's the heart of it. So of course the applications can vary depending on what the examples are. So if you want your software to read as it were a bunch of resumes and figure out which ones are the ones that should lead to an interview, then give it a bunch of examples of resumes in the past that have been judged to be worthy of an interview. Those are the examples. If you want to approve or deny people for a mortgage, well, give it a bunch of examples of applications that have been approved and applications that have been denied, and it'll learn, hopefully, ideally, which ones are mortgage-worthy and which ones are not, and so on and so on. Yeah, so that's all it is, learning by example. Super. So thinking about sort of clinical research, which is where I spend all of my time, and I imagine some of our listeners will be familiar with too, what sort of applications does AI have sort of in the clinical medical domain? I've heard some about it being used sort of for diagnostic purposes, let's say, for figuring out who might be a good candidate for 
kidney liver transplant, is it sort of reached that phase yet where it's doing such complex functions in the medical realm? Or what's your sense there? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be the best person to tell you what's the cutting edge going on in research in medicine and healthcare, but I can tell you absolutely that's the kind of application that people are looking into. So one layer deeper about what's going on when it's learning by example. When your AI is learning by example, it's looking at all the data that you give it. This is called training data. And more specifically, it's looking for patterns, mathematical patterns in all that data. So to take the Pepe example again, when you give it a thousand pictures of your dog Pepe and you say, look, that's Pepe, it's looking at the pixels in each picture and the mathematical relations among all those pixels. Why is that important? Well, maybe the pattern that you want to look for is not about, you know, is this Pepe or not? Instead, what you're looking for are you upload or you use a bunch of data related to people who develop diabetes and people who don't develop diabetes. And so it crawls through all that data looking for a pattern among the people who have diabetes or who develop diabetes and those who do not, so that when you upload a new medical record, it can hopefully predict with some degree of accuracy the likelihood of that person developing diabetes in the next two years or whatever it is. So, I mean, that's more preventative. It's diagnosing whether someone is a likely candidate for having diabetes. And the idea is supposed to be, at least in principle, that because the software is learning, is feeding off of, is trained by all those examples, all that data, it may well pick up on things that we don't pick up on. And so it might see that someone is at high risk of diabetes when we might not otherwise see that. That's one thing that researchers are trying to do with ML. Great. Fantastic. I think even my grandma could understand the basics here. So thanks. Maybe we can start get into the ethics of, of this a little bit. So the first thing or one of the very common things that people worry about here is that the outputs or the conclusions or maybe the algorithms themselves of AI could in some sense be discriminatory. So I want to talk about that, but I also want to note that, you know, you're someone who in your writing has sort of encouraged us to go beyond this concern about potentially unfair, discriminatory outputs of AI. So I wonder if you maybe could say both a bit about the basic worry about discriminatory AI, and then in what sense we should be looking beyond it or what other ethical concerns there are. Okay. So here's the way that I think about ethical risks and AI. There are three big risks. One is, as you mentioned, discriminatory and biased AI. The second one has to do with issues of black box models or unexplainable AI. And the third one has to do with privacy violations. And those are the big three because the likelihood of realizing those risks is fairly high because of the way machine learning works. Because as I like to say, it's the nature of the beast of machine learning or of the AI that we see now that those three risks are high probability. There are also loads of use case specific ethical risks. So to give you an example outside of the healthcare industry or medicine, just take self-driving cars. Self-driving cars are powered in various ways by AI, and there the ethical risks don't have to do with discriminatory algorithms or black boxes or privacy violations, but rather with killing and maiming pedestrians. So there's all sorts of ways you can use AI, right? It's a kind of tool. And so there's all sorts of ways things can go wrong depending upon what you're trying to use it for. So there's the three big ones, bias, explainability, and privacy. I like to say we should go beyond just talking about bias AI because there's lots of other risks that I just articulated, but there's no doubt that it's a phenomenally important issue 
the issue of bias or discriminatory outputs. Quick snapshot of an example in healthcare, Optum was in the news not long ago. I think this was reported in December of 2019 by the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal, that Optum had released a model that was being used that recommended to healthcare practitioners, doctors and nurses, to pay more attention to white patients than to sicker black patients. Well, how did that happen? Well, it tried to train the AI to, to figure out who needs the most help. And included in that training data, included in the examples or what was relevant for making a prediction about who needs the most help, were facts about who spent money on healthcare services in the past. The idea being that if you're spending money on healthcare services, you must be in need of help. But if you're not spending money on healthcare services, you don't need as much help. Yeah. But it turns out, for a variety of reasons, some surely discriminatory, that Black people spend less money in healthcare, not because they don't need healthcare, but because they just don't have the money to spend. They don't have the insurance. And so this AI learned, so to speak, uh, quote unquote, that white people need more care than black people. Again, despite the intentions of the engineers or the data scientists. So there's lots of things here. So number one is, well, humans are biased as well in their decision-making process. And so we're going to wind up with AI that's just as biased as people. Not necessarily. There are bias mitigation techniques that we can use on AI that we can't use on people because machine learning software works differently than, than people do. So the issue is not whether we can eliminate biases. The answer to that is no, we can't, but yeah. we can mitigate. And then the question is, well, using machine learning for these purposes, what's the relevant benchmark? Let me give you another analogy. When do we think that we should just allow self-driving cars to be the rule rather than the exception? Now, you might say, well, when self-driving cars are better than the average driver. Well, they're already better than the average driver. And that's because the average driver is a really bad driver. They're distracted. (laughs) They're texting while driving. They're eating while driving. They're talking. They're changing the song on the radio or whatever it is. So self-driving cars are actually, if you think that the benchmark is average human driver, then it's outperforming that benchmark. But self-driving cars are not as good as our best drivers. That is to say, the drivers that are not distracted, that are not eating, that are not, et cetera, et cetera. And so you might think, look, the relevant benchmark for safe deployment is the good driver, the good human driver. Why is that relevant? Well, when is it okay to use a machine learning system that is biased to some extent, assuming that zero bias is an impossibility? So here's one option. When it's less biased than the average hiring manager. Or here's a different benchmark you might use when it's less biased than our least biased hiring managers. Yeah. We can mitigate the biases of machine learning. We can't eliminate them. And then the question is, how much is enough? Depends upon what the appropriate benchmark is. What's the appropriate benchmark will be, among other things, an ethical evaluation of what constitutes the appropriate benchmark. Yeah. There are loads of ways you can get discriminatory outputs. One example is you've got training data that reflects various kinds of historical discrimination. So if hiring managers weren't hiring Black people, and there's a broadly racist explanation for that, and you're going to find that in the training data, that's the pattern it's going to learn, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Now, let's take, for instance, though, a mortgage lending AI, and it's trained on historical data, et cetera, et cetera, and it's going to distribute mortgages. You know, Let's say it outputs a number between zero and one. It's a probability of defaulting. So 0.1 is a 10% chance they're going to default. 0.9 is a 90% chance that they're going to default. And there's going to be all these applications that fall between zero and one. And you've got to set what's called the threshold. 
if it's above 0.3, we deny. If it's below 0.3, we approve. Right. Now, where you set that threshold is going to have an impact on various subpopulations. So it might be the case that if you adjust your threshold, you'll have an ethically acceptable impact across various subpopulations. But if you put it somewhere else, it's ethically unacceptable. It is discriminatory. Not all differential impacts are discriminatory. Right. A subset of differential impacts are discriminatory. And where you set your threshold will have an impact on what that differential impact looks like. So it might not be the training data that might be involved, but where you set your threshold is going to matter. To take one last example, what you're trying to do often is every time you have a model, you have an objective function, something that you're trying to maximize. So let's say you're trying to figure out who should get the lung. You're doing lung transplants. And reasonably, you say, look, you know what I want to do? I want to maximize the number of years saved. I don't want to give a lung to the 99-year-old because they're not going to get enough use out of it. I'd rather give it to the otherwise healthy 18-year-old because I'm going to save many years of life, all else equal. That's a reasonable goal, trying to maximize the quantity of years that can be saved if the lung goes to this person rather than that person. But if that's your, now in AI speak or in data science speak, that's your objective function. That's what you're trying to maximize. Turns out though that Black people have worse mortality rates than white people. Mm -hmm. And so you'll wind up giving more lungs to white people than to black people. That's not because your training data is messed up. But in fact, white people tend to live longer than black people. And so the discriminatory impact is the result of the objective function you set, not the training data. Mm -hmm. This is all just to say that there's lots of ways of getting discriminatory outputs, which also suggests that there's lots of strategies and tactics for mitigating bias. Yeah. Interesting. So we've been talking about kind of that first bucket of ethical risk. I want to just ask you briefly about, I think it was the second one, the black box. Can you say just a little bit about what the black box sort of risk is and why it's a risk? Yeah. So let's just go back to Pepe, the Pepe, your dog. I had mentioned that what it's doing is it's noticing patterns in the pixels of the photographs of Pepe. So we're talking about thousands of pixels and thousands of mathematical relations among those pixels. In other words, you're talking about a mathematical pattern that is way too complex for you and I to comprehend. The actual pattern is too mathematically complex for us to comprehend. We just don't, we can't do that in our heads. It's just unintelligible to us. When you're talking about labeling pictures, Pepe or not Pepe, not a big deal because all you really care about is whether it's accurate or not. In other cases though, you might care a great deal about why is it giving this output? Mm. Oh, this person, it says this person has a high probability of developing diabetes developing cancer. I mean, our experts don't think that this person has a high likelihood of developing diabetes or cancer, but the machine picked up on some pattern or other that is seemingly predictive of people developing diabetes, but we don't know why it's making that prediction. So what do we do? One thing that you might think is it'd be really helpful if we understood why the software, why the AI made this prediction, because if we could, we'd be better at assessing it. And so other cases, you might think if we're going to deny someone, say, health insurance, we're going to deny someone coverage. It seems, ethically speaking, that person is owed an explanation for why they were denied health care. That part of respect for persons entails that, at least in some cases, not every, but in some cases, people have a right to or deserve an explanation for why they're being treated the way that they are, particularly when the treatment is harmful. But if part of the explanation for why they're being treated that way is because the black box, that's just a metaphor for we can't see inside, we don't know what's going on. 
part of the explanation for why you were harmed is that the black box said no. That's not a particularly satisfying explanation. That doesn't yeah. seem to satisfy an ethical requirement for respecting people. So do you think this is kind of always a problem or sort of intrinsically problematic? I'm thinking about sort of context. Maybe we can go back to one you mentioned earlier. Let's say a machine learning function for predicting diabetes. Let's say you think you have a pretty good algorithm for doing that. I think some people argue that, well, we shouldn't worry too much about trying to understand it. We should just sort of test it and randomize yeah. clinical trials like we do any other intervention for yeah. diagnosing or curing things. And if it turns out that it's reliable to whatever you know <laughs> threshold we deem to be sufficiently reliable, then accept it. If not, not. So I wonder if there are yeah. contexts where this is less of a concern in your eyes. So that actually is my view. You know, people go on and on about decrying the existence of black boxes, but in many cases, we just care about accuracy, how, how well it does. One example that I like to give is, all right, look, what would you prefer? A, say, a doctor or explainable software that is 75% accurate at predicting the likelihood of you developing diabetes or a black box AI that against the benchmark is 99% accurate. Right. And all else equal, you might think, yeah, I want the black box model. In some cases, you just care about accuracy, doesn't matter. In some high risk cases, especially those that impact one's health, life, you know, including whether they may die, then plausibly you might think that using the black box model requires informed consent and it's ethically permissible on the condition that you've got their informed consent and it's ethically impermissible on the condition that you do not have their informed consent. Yeah, and this sort of brings us up against another topic I think we should cover. So you've written this, this really interesting article titled something like, if your company uses AI, you should have an IRB. Can you sort of elaborate on the basic premise of that article? There are tools for debiasing. There are tools for explainability as well, explaining why the AI is giving this output. There are tools for respecting people's privacy that say anonymize the data, use techniques like what's called differential privacy for keeping everyone anonymous but gathering insights from the data. But there's always going to be tough ethical decisions to be made that data scientists and engineers are not well suited to make. So to give you an example, you've used your AI to distribute goods and services across a population. Let's say you're distributing insurance or something like that. You're saying yes and no to whether or not someone gets insurance. Just keep the case really simple, health insurance. And you want to know, okay, we've just sort of said yes and no to these 10,000 people. So we've distributed, if you like, healthcare across these various subpopulations. How do we run it in a fair way? And what you might do then is you go to the academic literature in machine learning fairness, which is burgeoning. And what you find is a couple dozen plus quantitative metrics for fairness. And then you take those quantitative metrics and you ask, is this distribution fair by the lights of these mathematical quote unquote definitions of fairness? Now here's the crucial part <clears throat> and why an IRB is so important. These mathematical definitions are not compatible with each other. Mm. You cannot score well on all of them at the same time. Some of them are going to require you to, for instance, minimize false positives. Others will require you to minimize false negatives and you can't do the same thing. And we're talking about, again, two dozen plus metrics. So there's this really substantive and qualitative and ethical decision to make. What's the ethically appropriate metric for fairness that we should use here? And data, again, data scientists are not well-suited. Who is right. suited? Well, something like the members of an IRB. Yeah, interesting. 
Can you give an example of that where you have sort of this tension between, as you said, let's say, minimizing false positive, minimizing false negatives, and what that might look like in practice? Yeah. So I'll give you an example from an article by ProPublica in 2016. It's a pretty infamous case where people, judges, were using a software called Compass to determine the risk ratings of criminal defendants. More specifically, they wanted to know what's the risk that this person will commit a crime within the next two years so that the judge can determine whether or not they should get bail or something along those lines. So, okay, well, what would be fair in this kind of risk rating system? Now, what you might want to do is, if you like tough on crime, so to speak, you want to minimize false negatives. You really don't want to let someone who's a really high risk of committing a crime within the next two years for the judge to say, yeah, you're low risk. And then the person goes off and kills someone. And so you might use a metric for fairness that really prioritizes the importance of not letting potentially guilty people go. Yeah. On the other hand, you might think, Mm-mm, no, no, the real, the real worry here is not letting potential criminals go free. The real worry is not letting innocent people go free. We want to minimize false positives. So minimizing false positives is your priority. I think my own view is that it's more important to make sure that innocent people are not found guilty than it is that guilty people be found innocent. I recognize it's a substantive ethical decision and it requires investigation. And data scientists don't have anything like the training or the background to make such judgments. Yeah, got it. But they are making these judgments. So in the last little bit, maybe we can talk just briefly about the last category, which I think you said was privacy, confidentiality. And I'd like to both hear briefly kind of what you think the risks of privacy and confidentiality are with respect to AI. But then I'd also love to just kind of maybe end on a more general conversation about where you think as a society we are with respect to tolerating privacy and confidentiality risks. I'm sort of struck on a daily basis by the fact that now, everyone now has a smartphone, which can be used to locate you and track yeah. your movement basically at all times. Almost everyone's on social media. And the companies who you know are in control of these things have tremendous ability to sort of know what we're up to and to look into our lives. I wonder sort of where we are as a society with respect to our comfort level on those things. It doesn't seem to bother most people. I know yeah. that's sort of a big topic, but I'd love to get your yeah. thoughts on that in a few minutes remaining. Okay. So very quickly. It's the nature of machine learning. It's the nature of the beast that it recognizes patterns in data and those patterns might be discriminatory and you have to set a threshold and an objective function. So that's nature of the beast of machine learning that we're going to get discrimination. It's the nature of the beast of machine learning to recognize phenomenally complex patterns. And then it's the nature of the beast of machine learning that it requires data as its fuel. It's also the nature of the beast that it makes certain kinds of predictions or inferences about people based on all that data. So number one, Organizations are highly incentivized to collect as much data as they can about as many people as they can, because all else equal, the more examples of the more data you have, the more accurate your AI is going to be. So they're incentivized, in other words, at least some interpretations, to violate people's privacy. Number two, machine learning makes certain kinds of inferences from the known to the unknown. That's the whole point of it. Here's an example. Suppose I have uh, geolocation from the smartphones that you mentioned. I have data sets about where people go and when they go there. And just as a separate data set, I have the names and addresses of therapists. I feed it into my system and I can make certain kinds of inferences about who sees a therapist. If you know at 3.30 every day, Reed goes to this location. Separately, there's this data that this location is the address of a therapist. 
then you can make the probable inference that Reed sees a therapist every Wednesday at 3.30 or something along those lines. So it's not just the data that you train your machine learning on. It's also the new data, the data that you infer. Then there's how should we think about privacy generally? And one thing worth highlighting is that you've got the cybersecurity people who think about privacy, mostly in terms of security of the data, or you're making sure that only people who should have access, in fact, do have access. There's another way that people think about privacy, which is it's just about anonymity. As long as we don't know that you know this data is about you, yeah. then your privacy is sufficiently protected. That's a rather passive conception of privacy in which individuals' privacy is respected by virtue of it being the case that certain data is not tied to their identity explicitly. Yeah. There's a more active conception of privacy, which is something like it's a right that you exercise. So in the context of AI ethics or data ethics, the right to privacy is often conceived of as something like a right to have control over your data. So that's not a passive state. That's much more of an active capacity than the state of not being identified. Yeah. Now, how comfortable are people? It's very hard to say. Obviously, you know, there's not a small group of activists who are very worked up about this. Right. There's the average consumer or citizen who can't be bothered yeah. and everything in between. So I don't know. The truth is that, and this is really where there's lots to talk about, I'm not convinced that privacy is the right concept or the right yeah. moral wrong to focus on. Yeah. I'm less concerned about companies having the data and much more concerned with the kinds of wrongs they can commit by virtue of having the data. So yeah. limiting data access and things like that strikes me as an important strategy for mitigating the real ethical misconduct, which is downwind from possession of the data. Yeah, it's really interesting. You can see the appeal of that because, I mean, even as you were talking, I think there are sort of, I'm sure, well-known problems with each of these approaches to privacy, right? I think the notion of anonymity, the research community is really grappling whether this is an outdated notion because, as you know, given enough sort of publicly available data or not even that much, re-identification is always on the table. And then in terms of the whole right to control your data... I think, as you mentioned in an earlier conversation, do people really want this right or to what extent? Because, you know, it's a lot of work. It's impossible. It's logistically impossible. I think that we need to think about people and their data, not in terms of we need to give them control, but we need regulatory protections that people don't need to be explicitly aware of. Otherwise, forget it. Fascinating. Well, Rhea, thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of Advarin Conversations With. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was great to talk, and I hope we get a chance to do it again sometime. Yeah, same. Likewise, that was great. All right, thanks. That's all for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for joining. If you're interested or found this compelling or rich, please check out Advar's social channels and advar.com for our next episode. Thanks, all.